So we look then at the Old Testament and New Testament that gives us shadows, images, ways in which we can talk about God. We can use human language in terms of qualities. God is good. God is faithful. God is righteous. Or in terms of the negatives, namely God is incomprehensible. And then we just press it upon us. Today we think that God is a buddy that we can just easily bring up whenever we need God. But God is really the ground of all being in the whole of the world. That he exists then for us, but we need to see that we also exist for him. So that there is a relationship. So that we have always said that everything is contingent upon God. In other words, this world would be not unless God would sustain this world. When we talk about the God who is then incomprehensible, all of a sudden we are comforted with the teaching that the reality of God is 100% in Jesus Christ. Even in the Old Testament, the reality of God then anticipates the fuller reality of God that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ. But you don't go from one impression to a misimpression to a correct impression. It's rather that God reveals himself in a way that's inner consistent with his being. So what do we do? We don't only come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the privilege to search for the beauty of the Lord. And I want to emphasize that because in a secular age, we need to see the beauty of faith. Many times, Christians are not beautiful. And we give the wrong impression of our faith. But when we begin to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting himself to the Father, and the beauty of the Trinitarian relationship in terms of the self-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, for some people, it's ugly. But for us who have come to know the God in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the beauty of God as he then has given of himself for us. And again and again, we see the coherence, the beauty. It's not only the literary beauty of Old and New Testament. It is where we have an ontological beauty. In other words, we may say that these chairs are comfortable but you know that there are chairs that are more comfortable to sit in. And so it is with everything. There is always something that is greater. But what is the greatest that we can begin to apprehend? What is lasting? What is true? And all of a sudden we say, this is our God. And we have to come to worship this God. So that doxology is really the part of the Christian life. The more we grow in uh, conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ through the scriptures, the more we then also taste of the goodness of the Lord. Think about Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmists that speak about hungering and thirsting after God. We don't have much of that. We talk about it whenever there's a need. But what about just the sheer enjoyment of who God is, where we then have that sense of our true destiny is found, in that relationship between God, the triune God, and ourselves. So when we think then about the purpose of human beings, I think about Irenaeus, who said, it is to the glory of God when people are alive. Did you hear it? In other words, 
when God sees his creatures that are filled with life, and that is, of course, a saint in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's to the glory of God. He is very much like a parent around the dinner table may rejoice in having the kids alive, filled with discussion. And so there is the joy that God has when he sees the people who really are alive. And as I said in the first hour, many times we are dead. We are not pursuing. We are not asking questions. We just take things as they are. My cats do that also. I know exactly their routine. Food, rest, a little love, food, rest, etc. But what about just seeing that these cats are alive in everything that they are doing, where you can see something of what a cat is like. This is the purpose of human beings, to come to love God so much that we are able to delight ourselves in him. So that's a lifelong search. That means, yes, Josh, as you and I were talking last night, the pastors don't have much time for this, and yet we have to do it. Unless we have that search for God, that we hunger and thirst every time that we bring a message. It's going to be stale. As soon as we deliver it, it may be there's all kinds of fine, humorous anecdotes, stories, but it's stale. People are coming to really learn more about God. My colleague Van Hooser has put it this way. Imagination is the power of synoptic vision. What is synoptic vision? To take Psalm 27 as example, Psalm 28, bring them together. Psalm 29, Psalm 30, Psalm 23, 24, 25, 26. Are you getting the picture? We love pieces, and that's what we give people. Continue. The ability to synthesize heterogeneous different kinds of elements into a unity. Imagination synthesizes, making connection between things that appear unrelated. Now, that is your fear. You're afraid of being subjective. But the subjectivity is not yours. It is the authors of scripture. They're saying, God is my rock. God is my son. God is my shield. God is my shepherd. And he take you everywhere. You have really, the very purpose of the book of Psalms is to see God. Did you hear it? In other words, these images are to help you to see. But we want to break it down so that we say a shepherd is. Now we give a definition. Keep in mind when people ask Jesus about the kingdom of God, he never gave a definition. The kingdom of God is like, like, like Jesus. Stop it. Tell me exactly what is the kingdom of God. It's like. And we find it all the new. All these images. Trying to connect things that we want to pull apart. And we are afraid when we see the connections that we are subjective. Yes, you will sound subjective. Because you are not God. You don't really know how the pieces fit together. So, let me use an example. With my cats, I subjectively think that they love me. (laughs) But anyone who has a cat knows that cats don't love. Cats are really the owners, and we are the servants. And so they, I leave them in that kind of a sense of euphoria. But when it comes to knowing God, God is the reality. And whatever I say about God is not real. 
we cannot get it fullness unless we come to apprehend God in Jesus Christ. So we need to come to the point where we develop a beatific vision. Back again to that beatific vision. Where we see God and we are blessed by seeing God just to apprehend elements of God. So the beatific vision is the perpetual gaze on God in Christ that centers like nothing else on enjoying him. I've mentioned to you the book by Boersma. He goes into the whole history of the church and shows how people in different ages have spoken about the vision of God. But I would encourage you to think more about this image, the vision of God. I want to see God. And so what do we have in John chapter 1 verse 14? Christ tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Do you see? We have seen his glory. The whole gospel of John is intended to give us a sense of a vision of God. So that is what we find in the Psalms. So Martin Luther then speaks about a garden. And he says the book of Psalms, first of all he says, the book of Psalms is really like the book of Romans in the New Testament. In that it speaks about sin and also redemption. And so Luther, who did not always enjoy the Old Testament, loved the book of Psalms. Here he says, what you find here is a fair and pleasant garden. Yes, it enters into heaven itself. What a magnificent way to think about the book of Psalms and read all of scripture in that way. Bonhoeffer, beautiful statement. He loved the book of Psalms. He lived out of the book of Psalms. Yet people meditate on a psalm and see the connections. Uh, that was his form of discipleship. And he says, whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. I'm not saying that when you preach the Psalms, then it will happen. When you preach any scripture, whether it be out of the Old and New Testament, because what is it that we learn? We get to know who God is in terms of the many aspects of who God is. Thank you. Apparently, something has gone wrong with the communication, and you are communicating. So I can put this one down. Okay, thank you so much. How do we enter the metaphorical world of the book of Psalms? First of all, let's get to know the Psalm. I already have mentioned there are five books, so I'll stick with it. You have a collection of five books that are then under the shadow of the exile. From beginning to end, the exile hangs over the book of Psalms. Psalm 3, the first Psalm of David. How many are my enemies, O Lord? And that could be said throughout the history of Israel into the exilic and post-exilic period. God's people have been mourning. They have been longing for redemption. And we are still there in that we are longing for redemption. Books 1 to 3, you have many perspectives of God in the world. You have then the Psalms of David, you have the Psalms of the Korahites, the Psalms of Asaph. It's a complex way in which then these Psalms are woven together. In the last 20 to 30 years, we have said that there is a unity within the Psalter. There is then a collection within a collection. So you have 150 Psalms, five collections, and each of them have again so many Psalms in these particular collections. 
but there's a movement that you find throughout these books. So particularly books one to three help us to understand who God is. So you have lament, praise, questions, God's creation, his goodness, his faithfulness, the Vedic dynasties, Zion, wisdom, it goes on. It introduces you to the whole gamut of the Old Testament so that you are able to then see what the Old Testament is all about. In other words, if you get to know the book of Psalms, you get to know the Old Testament. You get to know the Old Testament, you get to know the book of Psalms. But notice then, particularly in book three, something happens. Psalm 73, the psalmist is asking the question, God, you are good, but not to me. That is a major question. Psalm 74, the temple is destroyed. Psalm 89, at the very end of that collection, God, you are king. Your kingdom is beautiful. But why have you rejected David? Why have you spurned the covenant? In other words, what you find in book three are the end of the Davidic dynasty for a while, the end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the people of God, the end of the connection with the land. Questions, questions, questions. And that is what I want people to pick up. Questions. Let me put it like this. Someone has said, that the questions of God are much more wonderful than the answers of man. And that's so true. We learn to think about answers. But the answers are not penetrating. So the best thing is to linger with questions. Why, oh God, have you abandoned us forever? Books 4 and 5. You now come out of the crisis of the exile. And there are perspectives that are given. Like the opening of book four, a psalm of Moses. God, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. You are God forevermore. But why do you crush people? Are you hearing the question? Why is it that you treat us like a grass, like the flowers of the field? Lord, renew your mercy to us. And all too often, as I've said, all we have is these black and white souvenirs. But there's a dynamic element that really touches upon our lives in a postmodern world where people are asking questions. Let me say parenthetically, what we come back with is the purpose of Christian living. No, that is an American answer. We all the time think about the utility, purpose. It is... The meaning of life, that's much deeper. What is the meaning of life? I can easily say the purpose of our meeting is to get so much done. But that does not enhance your meaning of life. Are you hearing the difference? The meaning of life, that's what people are questioning. And that's where the psalmists and Job and Ecclesiastes, they are just wonderful in raising these questions to us. And so we then... Come to Psalm 27 as our test case. Where is Psalm 27? It's in book one. No location. So whenever you deal with the psalm, know where it is. Know where it is in the argument. So what do you have in Psalms 1 and 2? Introduction. Seek wisdom. Both Psalms 1 and 2. Seek God. Don't reject him, Psalm 2. But rather, fear the Lord's anointed one. Stand in trembling before him. 
kiss the son, lest he be angry. And so you have to delight in God's instruction. Namely, the godly person delights in instruction. But let me say, it is not just that you delight yourself in Moses' Torah or instruction. The book of Psalms is Torah. The prophets have given us Torah. Torah just means instruction. God speaks to us through Moses, through the Psalms, through the prophets. And so what we have to see then is that the whole book of Psalms becomes really an instruction, a manual where we then develop a sense of the visio Dei, the vision of God. So what do we find at the very end? Happy is the person who finds refuge in him. The theme of refuge is very important. Likewise, in Psalm 27, you find that the whole world is in rebellion against the Creator. Psalm 1, verse 1. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 2. And you see that that is the nature of the portrayal of a real world that is in rebellion against God. And yet God is then constituting his kingdom with the righteous. Where the psalmist says that one should not be afraid in this kind of a world. Because God will take care of his children. So Psalms 1 and 2 are opening the door, as it were, into the structure that we call the book of Psalms. Psalm 3 begins with the Davidic Psalm that goes through Psalm 41. Psalm 33 is not a Davidic Psalm, but by and large it is a Davidic collection. And what you find then is the voice of David, who is both sinner and justified. So even in Psalm 41, the last psalm of book one, David says, but I've sinned grievously against you. And yet I am upright. Ouch! How can that be? And yet David sees both elements in himself, very much like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. O wretched man that I am. So we get to know David, and we get to know likewise ourselves through David. So each psalm reveals many connections. So we are going to come back to Psalm 23 several times. The Lord is my shepherd. And come then to the middle part, namely that even though I walk through the dark valley or the valley of uh, the shadow of death, I will feel no evil because you are with me. And what do you have then in verse 6? Namely, that goodness and love, chesed, will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is exactly the language you find in Psalm 27. So you cannot understand Psalm 27 without Psalm 23 and the other way around. And really, the journey takes us to the end of the Psalter, because what do you find, for example, in Psalm 136? Again and again, the refrain is, his love is forever. What is the word you have then in Psalm 23? His goodness and his chesed will pursue you. So Psalm 136 begins that God is good. His chesed is forever. Do you see? And when you then listen to these psalms as to how they witness, and they come from many different angles, you can see that the same is not being said. But there are so many different ways to talk about God. So Psalm 27 then, at uh, the bottom line, is a Davidic psalm that searches for the beauty of God, the vision of God. Psalm 27 verse 1, the Lord is my light 
and my salvation. You read it, immediately your mind goes to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Where else do you find this kind of a language? The Lord is mine. All you need is really a concordance. You don't need to know Hebrew, but you can look then for those expressions in the psalm. They very have then my, my, my. And the psalmist had many different ways to talk about God. He continues, the Lord is my strong, the stronghold of my life. And so you have then three metaphors, light, salvation, stronghold. Again and again, the psalmist says, I will not be afraid. What does that sound like? Psalm 23. I will fear no evil because you are with me. So you get a sense of the different language is there. But you see at the same time, the psalmists are all pointing to God. So who is this God? He's a God of light, salvation, and he's a stronghold. And you start thinking about so many texts in both Old and New that emphasize these. And we'll sample a couple of these. He continues then that even when the evil men, when the enemies, foes, army, look at all the different opposition that he talks about. There is no fear. He's confident. Now, what we discover is that he is confident as he wants to approach God and to see who God is. But at the same time, he is a weak human being who has petitions. So, yes, there's confidence. But at the same time, the reality that we as human beings are so different from who God is. Next. Think about Psalm 18, verse 1. I love you, Lord, my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. God is my rock. He's my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Do you hear it? In other words, Psalm 18 waxes so eloquent as it speaks in metaphors of who this God is. You can break it down in terms of, on the one hand, you have the strength of God, and that is also found in the term for fortress, uh, shield, horn of salvation. But then you also have other languages that rock and uh, the refuge even. There are so many ways. In other words, I want you to come to the point where you see the beauty of a song. If in Islam... The Quran cannot be translated because of the beauty of the Quranic language. How much more should we spend time trying to uncover the beauty of the language that we have in the Old Testament among ours? I'm not saying you should learn Hebrew, but learn to be really aesthetic. Learn to have a sense of aesthetics, of beauty. There are cultures that will have no paintings on the walls. Nothing beautiful. No gardens. Everything is so that people can have a place to sleep and eat. What do we do? If you have the right wife, she will decorate things so that there is an aesthetic dimension. That's what we have in the song. All kinds of things that kind of throw us uh, for a loop because all too often we want it direct. Who wants language to be direct man just tell me what you have in mind don't him and how around it who loves the images women god loves images and we have to learn to be much more gentle to be much more appreciative of images we want to control things 
And God says, I'm in control. Just learn to listen to me. So Psalm 18, continue. Psalm 23, we already have mentioned it. The Lord is my shepherd. Next. Psalm 28, right after Psalm 27. The Lord is my rock. Are you hearing it? Namely, pay attention. You have all these images that are given to us. Psalm 43, you are my God. You are God, my stronghold. Back again to my stronghold, as we have also in Psalm 27. Your light and your truth, send them to me. Let Guide me to your holy mountain where you dwell. In other words, what is he saying? I want to be with you. You send light. You might even say you send your goodness. You send your chesed. There are many other expressions that can be used. But send them to me and direct me so I can find the way home. Next. Psalm 144 as another example. He is my loving God, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, in whom I take refuge. Do you see as to how the language reduplicates itself? And you want to say to the psalmist, I've heard this before. He says, but you don't understand it. So listen again in a different configuration. What we want is all the time the same kind of configuration like a confession. But the psalmists, they have liturgical language, but they are free in the expression of that liturgical language. Next, back to Psalm 27. He says, I will not be afraid. And we already have mentioned that. And so similarly in Psalm 23, next, that I will fear no evil. Do you see? There are these themes that are being repeated into motifs, and they're important for us to recognize. So what we do with people say, don't be afraid. We don't give them images. God is a rock. He is a stronghold. What we can say as Trinitarians is that we are held then with a threefold cord of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On the one hand, we can say that the Son is light and that the Holy Spirit is strength. But please don't do that by saying this really teaches a Trinitarian perspective. So earlier, would you just back it up to the previous slide? And the one before you have loving God and we can say that's the father fortress is the Holy Spirit stronghold the Holy Spirit my deliverer the Lord Jesus Christ don't do that the early church learned a lesson namely who is the creator God what can you say about God the father the son and the Holy Spirit they are the creator are you with me in other words we want to just give tasks to one person of the Trinity but we are held together with a threefold love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we can continue. And so we come to the central verse, verse 4. Now this afternoon, no, this evening, and then tomorrow, I'll give a third lecture that develops this. But already saying that as we then read these Psalms, we need to learn to indwell these Psalms. That we can think about verses 1 to 3. It's this. Verse 4. Verses 5, 6 and 7. Verse 9. Verse 10. Verse 12. Do you see? We can see the logic within the Psalter. Because we have dwelt in the Psalms. And where we can very easily pick things up. 
in my case, I can easily say that there are images that I've carried in my life for 60, 70 years. If you are wondering, I'm 76 years old. And so I have old images. But I come back to these images because they are a part of my story. And all too often, scripture is just not an image. It is something we read and move on. What I'm asking is for us to dwell in the text so that we can then see how one text is connected with another text and another. Because God is one and he wants us to begin to see the oneness of his revelation. So we have this magnificent uh, statement. One thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Where do we have that expression, all the days of my life, or similar to that? Namely, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord for length of days, do you see? And he continues to gaze upon the beauty. Pay attention to gaze, literally to see upon the beauty of the Lord. Seek him in his temple. And then he says, then I will be exalted. And I will experience then joy and I will sing and make music to the Lord. So he is looking for deliverance. It's not that he knows that God is a deliverer, but he's also looking for deliverance. But he is looking in the right direction because he's coming to God. I want to dwell with you. So, for example, in Psalms 15 and 24, the question is, who can dwell on the mountain of the Lord? And that should be a good question for us to ask, because all too often we assume that anyone can. So if you take Psalms 23 and 24, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord for length of days. Psalm 24, but who may dwell? And you have qualities that are given there. And all too often we don't look for the qualities. Anyone may. Let me say something controversial. God has his favorites. The Psalms and Proverbs speak about the counsel of the Lord. People that are in God's counsel. How can human beings being a part of God's counsel? The analogy is Jesus and his disciples. You may not like it, but Jesus had his favorite disciples. And we do as if everyone is the same with God. No, we can excel and slowly then understand God's counsel much better. So my challenge is that we see the face and seek the face of the Lord. That we see his face. That means that we have a greater apprehension of who God is. And why certain things happen. Not that we are infallible. But at least there is the interpretive ability. And that is then what we find in the wisdom writings of the Old Testament. As to how to draw near to the Lord. And to see God. Yeah, pay attention to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I'll have something to say about that in just a little while. Next, Psalm 23, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 24, but who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Psalm 26, I love the house where you live, O God, the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 28, hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. The psalmist have a direction. They seek God. They are really theocentric in that sense. But in being theocentric, as you now understand, that's also to be Christocentric. Because God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. All too often, we do as if 
anyone can just become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus makes it very clear. We have to follow him. And that is what you find the psalmist doing. They are following already Christ. There is a transcendence that they see, a reality that they see that is not fading, but is real. And that reality is found in who God is. Next. Psalm 27 again. I'll be safe in his dwelling. He will hide me. He set me high upon the rock. You have a sense of God is there to protect you. Other images for God's presence and his protection. And then you think about Psalm 31 verse 20. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from the intrigues. In your dwelling, you keep them safe from accusing tongues. That's a good one. The other day, uh, the pastor of our church spoke about how he had heard slander and how this really had made him distraught. Uh, slander in the congregation. And what you find is that there are others who have lived with slander, like the psalmist. They often speak about the slander of people as they then speak wrongly about David, about God, about situations. And so what you find is that there are these situations in life that you may encounter and where you begin to see the answer is not to go to buddies. Dan, do you like me? Oh, he likes me. That is it. No, that is not. That is not it. Really, ultimately, it is the loneliness that we may have to experience to find God. And we don't like that because immediately we want a response. And you find that the psalmists are wrestling with who God is. So they find then the refuge in God. Next. Psalm 61. My refuge, strong tower. And he speaks again about refuge and shelter. Psalm 91 is beautiful. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Say, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. In other words, all too often we speak so easily about believing. But believing has to be tested in the reality of life, in the opposition of life, in the sense where life does not make any sense. And yet there is a reality that we are, have to come to because that reality really is a transcendent reality not being affected by whatever people may say. So the psalmist again and again have different ways of expressing it, and yet you find that now you are in the company of the saints, people who have spoken about God, who have sought God, and there's a reality in their way of life. Next. Psalm 27, verse 7. Hear my voice. What did we have in verses 1 and 2 and 3? Confidence. I'm confident. I will not be afraid. What do you now find? Lord, listen to me. Be merciful. Answer me. I'm saying, seek his face. In other words, he directs himself again to look at the face of the Lord. Think about Psalm 24, verse 6. Who will then be able to ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Among others, people who say, we seek him. And you have a group of people. Notice such is the generation. This is the group that says, seek him. Seek him, seek him. 
Next. Psalm 27 verse 9, he continues. Don't hide your face. Do you see the shift? First, he is with me. He is my light, my salvation, my strength. But now, all of a sudden, you have the psalmist crying out to God. Namely, Lord, you have been my helper. You have been my savior. And the same word for savior here in the translation that we have in the NIV is what we have in Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. But the word is being repeated here. Namely, God is, but he has been. And so there's a tension in terms of the God who is present and the God who hides himself. And that is exactly where we think that we are superior in that we don't need God to protect us, to hide us. But yet we do. Because where is Christ? Where is his kingdom? Where is his power? We believe he is. And yet at the same time, don't you want Christ to come sometimes and demonstrate that he's with us? What about then the Soviet Union for some 80, 90 years? What about the oppression that you experience in the Middle East where Christians have a hard time? We have to see that the reality of the gospel is a far cry from our expectations. Our expectations are, as Christ said in Matthew chapter 28, Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. We believe that. But can we give voice to questions? Where is he? What happens when there is a political issue, as we have had the last couple of years? Where is the church in terms of then raising questions? The time is not for skipping the answer. Namely, I believe that Donald Trump is God's savior sent to us. He's God's Cyrus. Or I don't. That is not the way to do it. But rather that God is the one in Jesus Christ who is our deliverer. Where the church really cries out. Uh, in uh, January I was uh, in teaching in Sri Lanka. And you know what has happened there. And I come to church and I hear nothing about Sri Lanka. Where the cries of God's people is unheard of. Where just in the last week or so, there was an OPC young man, you know, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, young man, that came into a synagogue and they already have likewise affected a mosque. The battle is not just out there. The battle is also in the church where young people catch some way or another their own message. So I'm saying that questions are very important because they lead to seek God in a new way. Notice in verse 12, don't turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I have to admit that whenever I speak about opposition, I speak as a person born in the Second World War. I've seen something of the Nazi regime as to how Jewish friends of my parents never came back. I have in my home two Kiddush tablets that are used for the consecration of the Sabbath. There, Jewish people would say, then, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. These people never came back, do you see? In other words, it is right among us. You may say, but these are Jewish people. 
These are people. And we cannot just make a distinction. Oh, they are only Muslims. Are you with me? In other words, we have to see that the kingdom of God is much bigger than what we see because God is. And now we have all these mighty images. Next. Here, powerful. My mother and my father may forsake me, but the Lord will receive me. He has confidence that God is like a mother and father and bigger than mother and father. He continues then with a request, teach me your way. You find it in a number of the related psalms where the psalmists are looking for God to direct. Notice at the very end, lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do you see? All the time the enemy is there. And the enemy is there around the church and in the church. But what do we do? We seek the face of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is really the answer. So let me put it like this. And again, I don't mind stirring up some dust. Jesus is not the answer. Because we created Jesus in our image. Are you hearing that? And so we easily say, Jesus is the answer. No, the answer lies in seeking Jesus anew, afresh, and to see how he may respond to a particular crisis and that you may have then the wisdom of God to be able to respond to that crisis and don't come in with kind of sayings that you've given before. Same old, same old, same old. For the sake of the young people, be fresh. Next, Psalm 25, verse 8. Do you see the context? Why do I go to Psalm 25? Because these Psalms are around Psalm 27. He guides the humble in what is right, teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. Verse 12. Who is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. Do you see? In other words, it's like Christ saying, follow me. Take my yoke. It's, I'm gentle. And there is a reality to following Christ. And the psalmists have experienced that reality. Next. Psalm 27 verse 13. Again, I will see the goodness of the Lord. Did you see it? Verse 4. I want to see the beauty of the Lord. Then, verse 13. I will see the goodness of God. To see. You might say that sounds very charismatic. If that's charismatic, I want to be a charismatic. I want to see the goodness of the Lord. I want to see the beauty of the Lord. But we cannot say that God is only the Holy Spirit. It's God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In that threefold relationship, we find the beauty and the goodness of God. Where did we read about the goodness of God? Look at Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and love will pursue me. Are you with me? In other words, there is a vocabulary that we have to get used to. And when we begin to discover it, there is a metaphorical world that's opened up for you. Psalm 25 or 6. Great is your mercy and love. Again, you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. So you get to see who God really is. Even though we don't apprehend what he's doing. Nevertheless, there's the solidity that God is good, he's loving, he's faithful, he's upright. Next. Uh, Psalm 69. Out of the goodness of your love. Notice that combination, God's goodness and his love. 
Psalm 100, good love. Psalm 106, he is good. His love endures forever. And so what you find, and especially in the fifth book of Psalms, you find a repetition that God is good and his love endures forever. It's very much like coffee after a good meal. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, I cannot drink caffeinated coffee. But I still remember having a good caffeinated coffee after a good meal. It just seals everything together. And that's what book five is doing. If you really have questions about who God is, book five is answering. Books four and five. Next. Psalm 118. God is good. His love endures forever. Are you hearing the refrain? Psalm 23, verse 6, has introduced us to that. But what is it that we don't connect? God is good. He's loving. And fill in the blank. And. Yeah. Right. But there's another thing. Go back to Psalm 23, verse 6. His goodness and his love, faithfulness will pursue you all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord. That's what we're talking about. In other words, the very language of God's goodness and of his love is to bring us home. Where we find that we are really are at home with the Lord. And that changes us. And Josh, yes, it's going to take you some time to reflect on that. But if it is all the time there, it gets to be a part of your search in other words, what we have to do is, using an analogy, we all too often have a fishnet approach. Catch something for the sermon. Wrong approach. You need a searchlight to search the scriptures and to have a sense that the searchlight is all the time giving you the right direction. It's very much like then the ships that are at the sea, they are looking then for the beam. And so you will keep looking for dwelling with God. Psalm 136. Again and again, his chesed is la'ulam. 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 His love is forever. Phrase or verse by verse. What do you have in Psalm 137? Anyone? By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept. How could our tormentor say, sing us some of the songs of Zion? You have one of the lowest psalms again. Yes, God is good and he is loving, but why did we have to sit by the rivers of Babylon? Immediately after that, Psalm 138, you have the final collection of the Vedic Psalms. Where David goes back over the same territory he already has dealt with in books 1 and 2. And what do you have? Immediately after Psalm 145, the last Psalm of David, five hallelujah psalms. Are you with me? In other words, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And you get to see there's a movement within the Psalter. Next. Now, strains at the very end. What does the psalmist say? Wait for the Lord. Be strong, take heart. Wait for the Lord. How does this fit in with the beginning? The Lord is my light. He is my salvation. He is my stronghold. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Do you understand now why I say our Jesus many times is not the answer. 
So a family has been struck with the bad news of cancer. It may be another half a year that somebody may live. And you can not just say, God is my light and my salvation, without saying, but wait for the Lord. Do you see? That is what we find in the Psalms again and again, exhortation. Wait. What do you have in Isaiah 40, verse 31? Those who wait for the Lord, they will renew their strength. Are you with me? What I'm saying is you're now entering into the very heartbeat of the Old Testament scriptures that ties then very beautifully in with the New Testament where we are encouraged by the Lord Jesus Christ to wait. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Do you see? We all want to have these very positive ways which we can speak about our Lord Jesus Christ. But life is much more complex. Take a look. Psalm 37, wait for the Lord, keep his way. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and I put my hope. Psalm 130, verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord, morning watchmen wait for the morning. Psalm 131, put your hope in the Lord. Hope, my friends, is so important. I've spoken with several of you about the importance of resilience. What does resilience imply? Disappointment. You have been tested and you have been disappointed. And yet you have seen something of the beauty of the Lord. That's what people want to hear. That you really can talk about this God as a God who is beautiful. Even when we have to face death. Next. What we have to learn to do is to see there are Themes within the scriptures. These themes very much like then you have a terminal and you have then a major terminal. Where let's say you take a railroad train and you go from one place to another. So you go from a theme to a motif. But as you go from theme to motif and you ride the railroad again, from one city to another city, from another city to another city. And you're beginning to see as to how there are correspondences. There are certain things that are in common. By God's grace, I do a good bit of international travel. And so you have certain expectations where airports are not intimidating, threatening. You know what to expect. And so that's what I want you to do when you read the scriptures. You know what you expect because you have seen so much in the scriptures. You have seen again and again the psalmist say, God is faithful, but. And it's a but that is so important. Because otherwise our faith is very shallow. The reality is when faith is tested in the difficulties of life. So what you begin to see then is what you have on the left side, patterns, figures. Designs. You're beginning to see God's design. You're beginning by the Spirit of God to begin to see the mind of God. The mind of Christ, do you see? And that is what we need. Namely, people who really, not out of pride, but they say, this is the way God works. So, for example, does God love to test us? Oh, he does. What do you find in the garden with Adam and Eve? What do you find in the case of Abraham, uh, Joseph, 
God loves to test. What about Moses? He was tested. Go, and I'll deliver Israel. But why did Pharaoh become angry and make it more difficult for us? God, I'm angry with you. Exodus chapter 5 and 6. And you find Moses not waiting for the Lord. More or less, God is saying, I am Yahweh. And that's what he says three times in Exodus chapter 6. I am Yahweh. Don't you control me. I'm not going to explain myself to you. And Moses had to learn to submit himself. What did he do at the very end? He lost it. God said, speak. And what did he do? He hit the rock. So you find that Moses failed. And David failed. The Old Testament greatest heroes fail. And then all of a sudden we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he fits the pattern. He fits the pattern. Perfectly. In a thousand different ways. And yet without sin. Do you see? So learn to see that there are these patterns. For me, patterns come to have a bearing. Then you have a text that says one thing. Another text that's related says another thing. And you're beginning to see how the pieces are coming together. Next. So take a look at Isaiah chapter 60. Here is Zion. The walls are salvation. The gates praise. Salvation that connects with Psalm 27. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Notice, you have a sense of light and you have salvation. So where God is, what do you expect? To be light, salvation. And that's what John picks up when he says that the light has appeared in Jesus Christ, came into the darkness. He continues then, um, the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. Wane no more. Do you see that end? The days of sorrow will end. So the theme of the scriptures then leads to expectations. The theme is one of deliverance, that Christ is the Savior. But there are expectations and there are many kinds of expectations. So Isaiah has a set of expectations. Next. Now, look at Matthew chapter 17. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we many times miss this. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses, Elijah. Peter said, it's good to be here. If you wish, I will put three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And we are going to watch. Verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what is it that the disciples did? Did not listen to him. It was only after the resurrection where they began to make peace, uh, where they began to put things together. And so what you have here is really the very glory of God is visible in Jesus Christ. Even his raiment is so visible. Next. Then we come back again to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. That we have seen the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Who is the exact replica, the very image of the Father. And yet he is able to reveal the Father to us. 
Next. John, filled with images. There's the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then God is the creator, verse 3. He is the source of life, verse 4. And the light, see, life, light, creation. And that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood. Next, think in terms of the seven times of the ego in me, I am. Images, 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 my friends. We cannot escape images. We have to dwell on these images. Not just have a quick answer, but rather that we see in the words of Van Hooser how the pieces fit together, where there is a synthesis that's taking place. I know what you will say. Synthesis is subjective. But if you're trained, you will pay attention. So, for example, there is a Dutchman of about my age who loves gardening, and I love gardening. He lives still in the Netherlands. I live in the U.S., he then is involved in building gardens in New York, London, Paris, and Chicago, and all over the world. His philosophy is very similar to mine. He wants to see that the gardens are for four seasons. And so I love the work that Pete Oudolf does. And he was uh, recently on PBS about a couple of weeks ago, um, just showing some of his work again. There are correspondences that I see between himself and me. And it's wonderful. But somebody else will say, and I'm going to imitate it. No, that's not. He is real and I'm real. He has his way, I have my way. And so when we come then to the metaphorical world, the apostles have seen something that we better stick with. Not go our own way by saying, God is a computer. Ah. I would rather see that God is my light rather than God is a computer. Does it date me? Maybe so, but that's all right. I would rather, because I don't understand these images, I would rather spend time on these images that are inspired rather than that I go my own way. So you don't have to go into all of these, but all I want to say is images, images, images. So what do we do? Seek the triune God, first part. Second part, enter the metaphorical world. And that is hard. Next. Thing about Revelation, his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Revelation 22, verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be upon their foreheads. There will be more, no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. What, can, what else can be said? Namely, no more sorrow, no more sigh. Life, light, salvation. Let's take a look and see if there's another slide. That is for the third session. So that gives us about nine minutes for you take it wherever you want to go. Yes. Yeah. This mine, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Do you, do you have any advice on, it's very beautiful when you describe, you know, 
like they're giving advice on wearing boot shoes in a way that is brings that sense of wonder and compelling. You know, see, that is, I think, where preaching is so beautiful. It brings out a sense of awe. What kind of a God do we have? And immediately we kill it by saying, and that God is Jesus Christ. What about the Father? What about the Spirit? So I would say it is not to take all these metaphors. So if I were to deal with Psalm 27, and we'll talk about it again this evening and tomorrow, uh, I would introduce different ways to be able to understand what these metaphors are pointing to. In other words, what I don't want is a person who says, I know how it all comes together. I need to spend time looking at the conjunction of these things, the synthesis of these things. And that has to come through in preaching, the sense of awe. Notice what uh, you find in the wisdom tradition, the fear of the Lord, the awe for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge, do you see? And let that be evident to the people. Uh, so, when you talk about light, there are so many different aspects to light throughout the scriptures that you cannot just define it one way or another. Yeah. What we need is a sense of transcendence, and we miss that. All too often, we can just come to God in Jesus Christ. That's true. But what about the sense of awe? We are dealing here with a one whom we don't know completely, but we may come to know. And that means there has to be a circumspect relationship. Thank you. Please feel free. You have stayed beautifully awake. That's always a challenge in the afternoon. Raise any kind of question. Yes. Right. Excellent. Okay, let me answer this. There is an excellent book by William Brown, Seeing God in the Psalms. Very relevant. Seeing God in the Psalms. William P. Brown. Uh, I would encourage you, because this is what he does. He categorizes the different ways of seeing God in the Psalms. Right. Yes. Can you give some examples of that? Because sometimes the textualization can become the meanings. Right. Instead of just the context, what was the message? Yeah. Can you give some examples of that? In the last two days, I have received a request from two young people, young men. Um, in their 20s, early 30s. Uh, and we meet from time to time. I don't have a schedule for them, but rather 
that anytime they can just make an appointment, come to my home and we sit. Uh, we have the gardens, of course, over the summer. We have a gazebo there. We have some privacy. We have a deck where we can also have privacy. Um, and I have no agenda. No agenda. Just listen to them and talk. One person has been very much hurt, and really the other person likewise. One is African-American, the other one is uh, Anglo. Uh, so it is open yourself to people, where you don't protect yourself, but rather be vulnerable. And slowly, all of a sudden, a person may say, ah, I have messed up life. And you say, welcome. I, me too. Yes. Right. Right. So the comparison that Paul has is between Moses and Jesus. And so the whole of the Old Testament, as I've said, is provisional. You're looking for something that's much more ultimate. And so that reality we find in Christ. So the more you see the provisional nature of the Old Testament, and beautiful as it is, and that all the basic structures are there that will be developed in Jesus Christ, then we can begin to appreciate Jesus so much more. So it is not just that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and that Jesus is then the sacrifice and this and that. But we begin to see that all that the Old Testament was trying to express, it could not. But the Old Testament was already made, given to God's people in view of Christ's coming. Do you see? So you can see the way in which God has prepared us for the fullness of his revelation in his son. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. There are many ways in which I can respond, but let me respond in terms of people who have same-sex attraction. I tell them, welcome, I have heterosex attraction. Because that's true. And how do I then resolve that? By looking at the beauty of women. Of course, that's the wrong approach. It's the beauty of the Lord. So the more I see the beauty of the Lord, the more I can see how petty my desires are. Exactly. Yeah, precisely. Somebody from that side? Yes. So, um, you talk about synthesizing the metaphors in Psalms. Right. Even beyond the Psalms, Isaiah. Yeah. So, 
And that was helpful to see if that connects with this year, Ryan, where those teams like you said, who are assault or certain. But, you know, we guard ourselves when we look like, uh, as we're walking through, say, an epistle or, or maybe even a gospel, uh, about, we guard ourselves about not having the one word. We wrestle with right. the semantic range of, yeah. of the word or mm -hmm. phrase as, as we walk through a mm -hmm. How do we, you know, do we need to be careful about synthesizing of the metaphors in that same way? Does that make sense? Oh, it does make sense. Yeah. Are right. always being the same in each of the Psalms, or are there different elements or themes or empathies that a, a particular Psalm is being That's right. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse, uh, I think, verse 5, he says, O house of uh, Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Um, now you have to understand how Isaiah uses that metaphor of light. Um, and then again, it varies uh, throughout. So you have then the um, servant of the Lord is to be a light to the nations. So we cannot just equate the one with the other. Um, in the first case, the exhortation is to Israel. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. In the second case, in chapter 42, it is a matter of then uh, uh, the servant of the Lord being a light for the nations. So there is a variety. But would you keep in mind, everything really comes ultimately together in Jesus Christ. Everything. So the synthesis that we do in this life is going to be very fractured because we are not able to put the pieces together. And later on, we're going to say, now we begin to see how all these pieces come together. And so, yes, we are going to see in part, and then we will see much more holistically. So all the time I feel that there is a way in which you can take a certain image and structure it under one category, but it also fits in another category. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I am not going to step on that grenade. <laughs> I think all of us are trying to create a sense of awe, but we can grow in it. That's all I would really encourage. Uh, you know, you think about John Piper as a good example of a person who speaks about uh, the delight of God. Uh, and that's the kind of spirit that I would like to see. But I'm not going to talk about people in terms of gradients. Uh, because I think all ministers are trying to create that. We just need to be much more conscientious of doing that, of having been in all of God ourselves. Thank you. Uh, are you of Hispanic background? Because I heard you in the hallway speaking Spanish. That's so great, wonderful. Someone else? We still, oh, no, it was 4.03. So I'm going to see some of you tonight, some of you 
uh, tomorrow. And some of you, God bless.